Good morning. It's good to be with you again. Well, last week, if you were here, you all know that we were in the book of Matthew, in chapter 5. And uh, you also know that it was my intention to finish the Beatitudes. What I didn't know, what I picked up upon from the tone of the service leader saying it was a passage we were all familiar with. <laughs> That our dear brother thankfully unpacked that same portion of scripture, what, a few weeks prior? Yeah, so we're going to take a few turns to the right, and this morning we'll, we'll leave the end of uh, the Beatitudes as they were, as you know them to be, and we'll end up, as you heard in the scripture reading this morning, to the end of Philippians. So if you have a copy of God's word with you, would you turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4? And if anybody else just preached on this one as well, <laughs> we'll trust God in his providence. I figured as long as I wasn't in Corinthians, I was safe. But With God's word before us, anticipating hearing it preach, would you go with me before him in prayer, asking for his help? Father, this morning we come to you mindful of who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be, even as we have sung this morning and heard, read, and been reminded in prayer that you are a gracious provider, that you've revealed yourself to us as Father, and that as Father that you seek to provide for your children. And Lord, we come to you this morning as children. We come as those who are dependent, as those who are needy. We acknowledge that we do not have what we need, that we do not Lord, have the provisions to even walk by faith, to walk in this life in a way that honors you, that we have no means to atone for our sin. We have no ability to see what even lies beyond us in the next moment or hour. And so we come aware not only of our, our physical limitations, but our great spiritual need and our great faith that you, our Father, will provide as you've promised for us in your word. And so we ask simply and plainly with your word before us, Father, that you would incline our hearts to you, to your word, because we know that our hearts can be inclined in so many different directions and given over to so many different desires. We pray that as we are inclined there, that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law, that we would see and hear with the eyes of faith, that we would be found uh, being increased in our sense of awe of you and your grace towards us. And being there, Father, we ask that you would unite our hearts to fear your name because we have divided hearts. And Lord, our great need this morning is to fear you. And in doing that, Lord, would you satisfy us with your presence? Would you cause us to, to know that great experience of being able to rest soundly in you, even if our circumstances are unchanged? even if our future remains completely unknown to us, that we are abiding in you and abiding in the deep rest that you provide. Would you do this through your word this morning by the work of your own spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for most people, whether Christian or not, contentment is something that we all want. It is something that we all seek. I don't think I have ever met a person who despises happiness. 
or who avoids satisfaction. I think Christian and non-Christians agree that satisfaction, it's a wonderful experience. It's a worthy pursuit. However, in being in agreement on that, I think it's also fair to say the way in which we pursue and enjoy commitment is radically different. Even though the entire world might be united saying we just want happiness, the Christian stands apart as distinct and completely unique in the way that they go after that same desire. Because at the heart of Scripture beats this pulsating truth that that men and women have been created to know God. And that in rightly knowing God, we find deep and abiding satisfaction. That is God's design. But these same scriptures also teach something else, don't they? They also teach us that we've turned our backs on this God and we serve various forms of creation rather than the Creator Himself. And therefore, if this is all true, then what it means is that the Christian is the only person on the planet who can know genuine contentment. The Christian is the only person who can actually know what it means to truly be satisfied because a Christian is someone who has become convicted of their rebellion against God, that they repented of this unbelief and they are now resting in the promise of the gospel and they've been united to this God. So what I want to put before us this morning is this tremendous importance of the place of contentment. How important contentment is in the life of the Christian, not just because of the benefits that it brings, but because of the barometer that it actually becomes as it signals to us the substance of our true hope and our true worship. You may be here this morning and proclaiming that God is your hope and that you've come here, of course, to worship Him, but in all of our lives, this issue of contentment actually raises the flags as to where our true allegiance lies. And so for this reason, how, we, how content we are amidst temporal circumstances actually reveals something to us of eternal value. That's what I want to think about this morning. And so we'll think about it along these lines as we make our way through Paul's final words to these Philippian believers. The lines that we'll trace are this, the apostle who is satisfied, the church who shares, and the God who supplies. So if those sign markers are helpful as you make your way through the text, that's the the chart, the course that we'll be charting. The apostle who is satisfied, the church who shares, and the God who supplies. Consider first this apostle who is satisfied. We read of this in verse 10 if you look back at your Bible. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think now more than ever, we need to be clear on the connection between our contentment and our apprehension of the gospel. That contentment is a gospel issue. It's related to the gospel very directly. In the sense that because of who God is, because of what he has done for us as sinners, because of how he's proven himself faithful to us, all of this ought to serve to promote the highest degree of, of trust and rest in who God is. When I hear what God has done for sinners in the gospel, it ought to fuel great rest and contentment in this same God. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote very well and very helpfully on the issue of Christian contentment. He said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. In good puritanic form that's worth sitting upon, meditating in, and thinking about. We read of something similar in Hebrews 13.5. The author says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And then there's this all-important hinge verse. Why? Why should we do those things? For, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Gospel promise attached to contentment. This issue of contentment is something that Paul closes out his letter with and he wants to, these Philippian believers to be sure that they are clear on. And even though we may nod in agreement with all of this and know all of this to be true, and it ought to be every Christian's experience, I think we also recognize something else. We also recognize contentment is not something that we're just immediately zapped with upon the moment of conversion. As if you were given new life, and then you're completely content for the rest of your life. We all know that's not the case. We can know the promise of the gospel, but struggle with genuine contentment all of our days. And that is why I am so glad that Paul says here, contentment is something learned. Did you notice that? Contentment is learned. Contentment is like many other godly gifts and fruits, it's something that we learn through experience. And I'm so glad that Paul says contentment is something that he has learned. This means that if you and I recognize right now, and we're honest with each other, we recognize, yeah, I am not content in a number of ways right now. Or if we wake up tomorrow morning and we struggle with, as Burroughs said, freely submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly care of us, what that means is it's not hopeless. It's not a done deal. Contentment can be learned. In fact, we only come to it through learning. Paul, of all people, the great apostle, was not naturally content. Think about that for a moment. As you read the biography of godly men, godly women, you will find that even though we respect them as great heroes of the faith, they did not 
have contentment naturally given to them. They had to learn it. That's one of, the, one of the great benefits of reading biography. You learn how God did this, what they learned through that, and then you hold that up to your own life and see how God might be teaching you something similar or something that you've forgotten. See, contentment is just like many other graces and gospel issues. Genuine faith is only known through testing. The goodness of the gospel is only seen to be good against this backdrop of really bad news. And contentment only comes by learning something in the varied seasons of being brought low, as Paul says, or having all things. Contentment is learned. So, have you ever stopped just to consider the goodness of God in the means by which he brings contentment about in our lives. Oftentimes we push against this and say, if I could just be content here, I'd be fine. But think for a moment, meditate upon the fact of God's goodness and how he chooses to bring contentment into the lives of his children. Richard Sibbs is helpful here as he just, he brings this up and he says, have you considered the goodness of God in his means? Meaning whether it's being brought low or having all things. What do we learn by God's means in teaching contentment like that? Well, one of the things he points out is that we learn that the love of God is constant always in a variety of conditions, foul weather or fair. We learn something of the love of God through changing circumstances. We learn and we must learn the great comfort that there is if that there is no shadow of change with God. For contentment to, is really only learned when you discover that God is constant, that he is unchanging. And this is one of the great benefits of the seasons of change. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I have discovered God to be faithful there. And he says, I know how to abound and have all things and I've also discovered God is faithful right there. So if this is true, we need to be careful. We must learn to never argue with God or his dealings with us. For though he may alter our circumstances, he never alters his loving care for his people. That we learn something of the love of God through the means of God to teach us contentment through a variety of circumstances. We can go through different seasons or trials and blessings and we can have the same testimony and say, I've seen the love of God be faithful here and there. God does not change. But we also learn how to be a Christian in all conditions. We learn something not only of God, but we learn something indirectly of ourselves. We learn how to be a faithful steward in seasons of abundance. Sometimes many of us wish, well, like, I just love to be a faithful steward. Just give me everything and I'll, I'll be a faithful steward. I'm tired of not having enough. Paul says, no, you need grace for that too. We learn how to be a faithful steward when we have an abundance. Thankful for God's gracious provision. Humbly trusting in God and not his gifts. That's a hard thing to do. Likewise, we learn to be one who is humble and submitted to God and, and the other extreme in seasons of lowliness and lack. We learn how to be a Christian when we have all things and when we have nothing. We learn that Christian, the Christian graces of, of thankfulness and joy 
and generosity can still flourish in the wasteland of lean times. Circumstances are not the driving dependent factor to create thankfulness or generosity or contentment. We learn how to be a Christian through all seasons. Again, Sibs, those who are not brought up in Christ's school, nor trained in a variety of conditions, are able to do nothing. This is in response to Paul saying, I can do all things. He says, Christians who are not brought up in this school of a variety of conditions are able to do nothing. If they abound, they're proud. If they're cast down, they murmur and fret as dejected, as if there were no providence to rule the world, as if they were fatherless children. This is the excellency of a Christian, that he knows what it is to abound by experience, so he knows how to abound with the practice of the graces and how to want with the avoiding of the snares that are usually in that condition. How might God be working to teach you contentment in your present condition right now? What might that be? What are you learning of God that is meant to promote contentment in whatever circumstance you might be in right now? This is God's means. This is God's school. This is the way in which we learn contentment by God's good design. Contentment is learned. Paul also says contentment is possible. And I'm so glad he says this. Contentment is actually possible. Unlike some magicians, Paul has no problem revealing his secrets. He says right here, do you want to know the secret of contentment? He says, well, I'll tell you. It's not sheer willpower. It's not getting rid of all forms of desire. If we just get rid of the things that make me want something, then I'll be content. He says, that's not it. He says, it's not even despising earthly gifts or good things. That's not it. The secret of contentment, Paul says, is that I can do all things. I can be brought low or I can abound. I can do all things, anything in between. I can do all of it through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret. Paul was convinced. There's, there's literally no circumstance that could ever arise that could be too much for Paul's God, and therefore no circumstance could ever be too much for Paul. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, a Christian man or a Christian woman is an able man, an able woman. They have the Spirit of Christ. Whoever has the Spirit of Christ is able, able to do all things. If you are in Christ and dwelt by His Spirit, Scriptures say you are able to resist evil. You are able to withstand temptation. You are able to suffer affliction. You are able to enjoy prosperity. You are able to break off sinful practices and take up godly habits. This is what Paul means. He can flourish in all conditions. He can experience all graces. He can resist all temptations. He can suffer all the afflictions. He can do all of this. Why? Because he is indwelt by a spirit that is stronger than his own. A Christian is a new creature. 
furnished with a new nature, with new graces for all seasons. This is why a Christian is the only one who can legitimately be content in all circumstances. Now, if this were just purely a matter of, of just natural reasoning, like you just need to change your perspective, you need to stop with the glass half empty, the glass is half full. If it was just put a spin on it, then this would be hopeless. It would be quite discouraging. But contentment is possible because the Spirit of God dwells within God's people. Therefore, let us then be ashamed and repentant when we catch ourselves grumbling in our low seasons or boasting in our abundant seasons. We are in Christ. We can do all things. Whether brought low or having all things, I can still be content with what I have and glorify God with what he has given. We are strengthened by God himself to do this. We are able to do this. And he has not left us without the provisions or the strength because this God, he is a faithful, he is a wise God. Let's think about this. What this means is that God will not send you into a particular season without also supplying you with everything you will need for contentment. And just what does contentment sound like? Well, it sounds like praising God for His goodness in all seasons. It sounds like resting in God for His provision each day. It sounds like being thankful for what He gives, being free from bitterness or jealousy over what others have. Yes, a Christian can do all, but even in this, this is what is amazing, even when we fail in this, even then, the gospel reminds us that we can be forgiven. So in that sense, a Christian can do all things. I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God, able to be content in this, but even when I fail to be content, I can be forgiven and know the resting satisfaction that comes from being pardoned and say, Father, forgive me and help me. I can do all things through Christ. So if you find yourself in this place wrestling, struggling for contentment, I would encourage you to pray something like this. Father, please provide what I lack or make me content without it. Either provide what I lack or make me content with what I have. I guarantee you that is a prayer that's going to be answered. Either you will be freed from your troubles or your lack or your abundance, or you will have grace to bear them. Because God is a faithful God. The apostle who is content, but then he also speaks here secondly of the church who shares. The church who shares, verse 14. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied 
having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Much of the context and background of this letter comes right here. And it comes by way of learning that the Philippian church heard that Paul was in Rome, in jail, imprisoned. They became concerned for his welfare as he was instrumental into the planting and establishing of that body of believers, that church there in Macedonia. And so what they did out of concern is they sent Epaphroditus, a member and most likely pastor of their church, some 700 miles to Rome to send essentially a care package to him. Hey, we heard Paul's in prison. Take all of this. We've kind of rounded some things up. We know he's going to need all of this. Go see how he is and bring this to him. Go. Now, from this, from Epaphroditus coming to Paul in prison, he learns of the Philippians, he learns of what's going on, and then he sends this letter back to, Epaph- back to the church through the hands of Epaphroditus to tell him all of these things. So there's a little bit of background that's revealed here in these closing verses. And from this context, from Paul's writing, we learn a few things about this sharing church. We learn that they shared out of concern. This is important. This was not an instance of checking a box, reviewing a line item at a budget meeting. How much have we given to that Apostle Paul guy? What did we give last year? Let's up it 2%. This This was born out of concern, not obligation. They wanted to share, is the word there in verse 14, they wanted to share in Paul's troubles by sacrificing out of what they had in order to provide for Paul. Do you see the difference? They were not venture capitalists looking to invest, saying if we just put a little bit here, I think we can get some return. They weren't even just financial supporters saying, hey, we've got to give something to help our tax bracket here. Let's just give to Paul and that'll cover that. They were actually yoked together with Paul. They They were sharing as they were able in his sufferings in order to find ways to relieve Paul and his condition. What Paul's hinting at here is that these Philippian Christians, they were prepared to experience financial deprivation, financial loss, in order to help Paul and bring him some comfort in his misery. We'll take the hit, Paul, if it'll just help your condition a little bit. We want to share with you. Sharing fueled by concern. Now, we all remember as kids, and some of you who are kids, you can probably remember back to, I don't know, maybe this morning when you were forced to share with a sibling or a friend or a cousin, and we heard those words, you need to share. Now, it might have come down to forcibly taking something out of our clutched fingers and giving it to the other person and saying, thank you for sharing, but that is not the sort of concern that was here. This, that we could call that sharing by obligation. This in Philippi was nothing of the sort. It was not sharing out of guilt. It wasn't sharing out of obligation. I think you could call it fellowship. And what a wonderful experience it is to be brought from mere obligation to joyful partnership. To say, this, this might even hurt me and I'm going to have to find a way to make ends meet. Paul, I want to share with you 
I want to share in your sufferings. I'm going to willfully take on a little bit of suffering if it will alleviate you and your condition. We learn not only that their sharing was out of concern, but we learn in verse 15 and 16 that their sharing was actually exemplary. When the Philippian church was in its infancy, having just recently begun a, a few years prior, they and they alone shared with Paul. It wasn't some established, massive church with all of this wealth that said, hey, here, Paul, take this along with you. This was a new, small church with not a lot of means that said, hey, Paul needs something, guys. Let's, let's band together and let's support the work of the gospel through our brother Paul. This was a young and not overly wealthy church being prompt and exemplary in their help, so much so that Paul even calls them out as a model example when he's writing another epistle, 2 Corinthians 8. Maybe you've seen this. As he writes to the Corinthians, he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's where Philippi is. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. As Paul is raising money to help the impoverished saints in Jerusalem, Macedonia was first in line saying, we want to help. They were exemplary in their sharing. Not only were they exemplary in verses 17 and 18, look what it says there, their sharing was pleasing to God. The church that gave was pleasing to God. Essentially, the highest praise that Paul could speak of these people is that the what you did and the way that you did it, that pleases the Lord. What a great compliment. Or just to hear somebody say, I think that pleases the Lord in the way that you went after that. Not all giving can be described this way. Because as you probably know, the determining factor of our giving being pleasing to God has more to do with the motive than the amount, the timeliness, or the visibility of it. Just ask Cain or Abel about this. Hebrews 11.4, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though, his, though he died, he still speaks. So we need to never forget that the sort of giving that is God glorifying is not ultimately dependent upon the amount, but the motive. Paul said, you've been an example, Philippians. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In his commentary on Philippians, Sinclair Ferguson offers some helpful yet difficult questions to work through in regards to this example of a church that shares. I found them helpful, so I just jotted them down to pass them along to you. He asked these questions. Number one, do I regard my Christian stewardship as partnership? He clarifies saying, or do I see it only as an investment with no return, a one-way relationship? I give and they get. 
Do you see your stewardship? And I don't just mean in money, but stewardship of time and energy and resources and commitment. Do you see that as a one way where I just give, I just bleed out and somebody else benefits from it? Or do you see it as fellowship? Stewardship. I'm entering into this with you. We are co-laborers. We are partners. Second question, do I really believe that God will supply what I need if I share sacrificially? Now, I know that in my head, but do I really believe that in the moment when I'm put to the test of, this is going to hurt. I have to give up a whole Saturday. That's going to give up X amount of my paycheck. That's going to give up all of this freedom. Or do I always give in such a way that sacrifice can be avoided? Third question, do I really want to live and give and pray and share with others in such a way that glory will be seen to come to God by the way that people love each other, support others, and depend on one another? Giving in such a way that God is glorified. That this is going to serve to help people love one another better, that this is going to serve to support others better, that this is going to serve to help people depend on one another. What we're saying and what each sort of these observations point to is that the gospel creates generous people. The gospel transforms miserly, selfish people to be generous, sacrificially generous. For you know the grace of our Lord Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. It's wired into our DNA because Christ himself has done that for our benefit. Meaning one of the ways that we know that the gospel is bearing good fruit is our willingness to share with others. One of the ways that you know the gospel is bearing good fruit in your life is your willingness to share. So what might that look like? What sort of fruit can you see being born in your life as a result of the gospel that you profess with your lips? Do you, do you see the gospel bearing the fruit of sharing your time, sharing our homes, our food, our paychecks, our know-how, See, all of this is the very natural ways that Christians come together and say, I, I'm in fellowship with you, and I'm going to share with you. That is normative for churches and where the gospel has come to take root. And it should be encouraging to you as you see that happen within your body, and you see that increasing, and as you pray for that to increase more. The apostle who is content, the church who shares, and then we'll end with this, the God who supplies. This is verses 19 and 20. Where after acknowledging their sacrifice, the gift that actually was very costly to them, he's quick to say, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Got to recognize here that as Paul is writing to his friends at Philippi, he's sort of walking a bit of a tightrope in that he wants to assure them, number one, guys, I've never really been in need. 
Because God himself is sufficient, and therefore I'm content regardless of circumstances. He wants to communicate that, but at the same time, he wants them to know, I'm so thankful for your gift. This is not a case of, guys, that was really nice of you to send that, but I already have that. You know, it's one of those, Christmas morning, birthday, open the gift, I already have one of those. Thanks. That's not what he's saying. He says, I have everything. And yet here's the Philippians sending this sacrificial gift. And he says, but at the same time, I want you to know I'm so thankful to God for you and for sending it. And I commend you for it. I see this as a means of God's provision. And also he recognizes, okay, your gift, Philippians, that you sent to me, man, that was costly. You're going to feel that one for a few months. You gave sacrificially. You gave at quite an expense. And so on the heels of that, in order to meet my need, I want you to know my God will supply all of your need. Do you see what happened here? Paul is in need. The Philippian church gives to such an extent. Now they're in need. So Paul volleys back and says, look, I know what you did cost, and I want you to know my God is going to meet your needs. You gave to such an extent that you're exposed right now. You don't have everything you need, but I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, my God shall supply all that you need. Calvin paraphrased it this way, do not think that you have impoverished yourselves. God, whom I serve, will abundantly furnish you with everything necessary for you. Consider this wonderful phrase, my God, your need, his riches. My God. That's what Paul says to them. Paul was not talking about a theoretical God. He was not talking about a distant Greek God. He's not talking about a philosophical idea. If you just draw a circle around it, or if you just speak a blessing over it, or if you just believe it enough, he was saying, my God will supply all of your need. This is not the vague, like, guys, it's, it's going to be okay. It will all just work out in the end. No, he was very precise. Paul was very emphatic. He said, my God will supply all that you need. What we gather from this that is, that is only those who know something of contentment, as Paul said he did, only those who know something of contentment in varied seasons can say with emphatic assurance, my God shall supply. It's quite a powerful testimony. It's those who have learned contentment that become the best teachers of God's faithfulness. I've learned something, and now I want to assure you of something. My God shall supply. And so I want to ask you, can you speak on those terms? My God. Because this is the great aim of Christianity right here. To bring us into a union with God so that we know Him, not coldly or distantly, but with such nearness and such intimacy that we can say, my God, I know him. He's proven himself faithful when I've had nothing. And he's proven himself faithful when I've had all things. So I can tell you, Philippians, my God shall supply what? Your need. Your need. This is the great promise of the gospel and the testimony of Scripture that we are a, a needy people. We are insufficient to provide for ourselves. 
we have needs in suffering and pain that are unique to those circumstances, as some of you know. We have needs in guilt and in our sin. We have needs in seasons of depression or heaviness. We have needs particular to seasons of waiting, seasons of labor and work, uncertainty and change, familiarity, routine. All of these circumstances create particular needs. God shall supply your need. Whatever your need might be in this season, so I ask you again, what need do you have today that God is not sufficient to provide for? Name it. What might it be? Health? Provision? Financial need? Even the greatest need that you could ever know? The sense of guilt over your own sin? What is God not sufficient to handle? My God, your needs. And then he says, his riches. My God, your need, his riches. Commenting on this passage, Charles Spurgeon said, The preacher may sit down now, or he cannot compass this part of the text. God's riches and glory is beyond all thought. So let's pray. <laughs> Perhaps the best we can do is just meditate for a moment on the riches of God. Perhaps that will help us move in the right direction. Consider the riches of God first just in nature. All of it. The flowers, the sunlight, the rain, the frost, the wind, the oceans, the stars, the planets, the black holes. All of creation bows to its creator to fulfill his good purposes. God used a star to guide Magi to Christ. God used a massive Red Sea to deliver his people. Consider the riches of God in nature. Church, God has all of nature at his disposal to meet your needs. Think of that. It's all his. He says, I can just draw from this over here. You didn't know about that, did you? Yeah, I, I own that too. That's mine. Consider the riches of God in nature. Consider the riches of God just in providence. He says to this creature, go. And he goes. He says to another, do this. And he does it. Every man, woman, congressman, CEO, king, and country do God's bidding. He is rich in providence. He raised up this Persian king, Cyrus, to bring his people back to Jerusalem because the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. We can rest assured that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. The glory of God's providential care is working to supply his people with everything that we need. Consider the riches of God in his grace. What need might you have that could not be covered by the riches of God in his grace? Where sin abounded, grace abounds much more. And we rest assured and we say with Christians who've gone before us, 
there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Think on that for a moment. So what impoverishment of sin has ruined you where Christ has not also promised to supply out of the riches of His grace? The Lord, speaking through Isaiah, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. These riches are of infinite supply because they are according to what? According to the glory of Christ Jesus. So think about it this way. As glorious as Christ is, so the abundance of his supply. Have you ever mined the depth of Christ's glory? Have you ever been able to get your hands around the glory of Christ? That is the supply that God has for us, according to the glory that is in Christ Jesus. It's no wonder then that Paul is compelled then to break out into praise to God, our Father be glory forever and ever. Because this is the God who does this. This is the God who supplies. So do you see how our lack of contentment serves as this barometer which actually just exposes our unbelief and our neglect of the promise of the gospel? The announcement of the gospel declares that even though we de- what we deserve in our sin is to be left to face the consequences of our rebellion, and the Bible is very specific, it is the wrath of God. Even though we deserve to face the wrath of God and His good and righteous judgment against us, the gospel promises that God has also provided grace for sin and mercy and judgment. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ is the highest expression of God's care for sinners. And he holds it up and says, look, this is how much I care for my people. Therefore, if the father was willing to sacrifice his son to rescue sinners, how will he not also supply us with everything we could need? It's an argument from, from, from the least to the greatest. If, if he's done all of this, surely he can take care of this. The substance of Christian contentment it's not a vague hope that, hey, everything's just going to work out. It'll all come out in the wash. It always comes out in the end. No, the Christian certainty of contentment is this concrete certainty, my God will supply all our needs according to the riches that are in Christ Jesus. See, the Father's love, shown in the giving of His Son, is the fruitful soil in which contentment grows. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Contentment is tied to the gospel. So may God pass this wonderful truth and press this wonderful truth into us that we might know this abiding rest and this abiding contentment that comes to us by God and His grace. Would you pray with me? Father, what do we have that you have not given?
Lord, there is, there is nothing. There is no season. There is no act of your providence. There is no provision. There is nothing that we have that you have not provided, that you have not sent. And so, Lord, would you help us to see the graciousness that you give to us in Christ as sinners, the provision that you make there. Would you cause us to see your fatherly care and your gracious treatment of us as the grounds and the substance and the hope and the confidence that would fuel genuine contentment in whatever season that we might be in. Father, we want to be convinced that we can do all things because you have provided out of the abundance of the riches of your grace for us in all seasons. Work in us that we might be a content people, quick to speak of your grace and your provision, your wisdom and your kindness, that, Lord, we might testify truthfully of who you are, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.